Matthew Sutton, a professor of Catholic theology at St. John's University in New York City, giving you the cat's pajamas of podcasts where I speak about the best of Christian theology, culture, and love. On this episode, I give a powerful talk, uh, which I had given on March 9th, 2013. It was on God's compassion for our suffering. It was during a conference on the meaning of suffering at St. John's University. I was so happy to speak about the compassion of our Father, who reaches out to us through His Son and the Holy Spirit. In the course of the talk, I lead the audience through the deeper meanings of the story of the prodigal son, which you can find in your Bible, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 15, 11 through 32. I hope you enjoy this one. I so enjoyed giving this talk. It's a good one. So greetings and salutations, everyone. It's good to be with you, especially in this environment. Very important uh, that, for me at least, that we begin with a moment of prayer as we think about God's compassion for our suffering. And so if you will join in with me uh, saying Psalm 65, or just take it for a moment of silence, shall we? In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, amen. To you our praise is due in Zion, O God. To you we pay our vows, you who hear our prayer. To you all flesh will come with its burden of sin. Too heavy for us are offenses, but you wipe them away. Blessed is he whom you choose and call to dwell in your courts. We are filled with the blessings of your house, of your holy temple. Glory to the Father, to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So the topic for today's uh, presentation, God's compassion for our suffering. The question behind my presentation, does God suffer? That's the question we're going to be answering and thinking about in this. The previous uh, presentation by Dr. Connie Weiner was interested in making sense of human suffering, and the next presentation is going to be on pastoral uh, actions that the church can take to alleviate suffering. I'm going to ask and address the topic of suffering from God's standpoint, because the Christian message complicates our understanding of who God is, because our belief is that God came down and suffered on behalf of us. Does that mean God suffers? Now, something that a Christian, fine, good young man that he is, forgot to say is that I'm known uh, also for being a professor here. Uh, I like how you almost slipped and gave me a, a promotion. You almost have said associate. That's hopefully next year. From your lips to God's ears, all right? Uh, but I'm also a father and a husband. I'm married. I have four daughters and another one on the way. God is good. God is very good. And so this gives me a chance not only to open conversations up with people, random people, sometimes in a negative way, sometimes in a positive way. Sometimes people will come up to me and say, how can you have a, these many children in this kind of economy? Literally, somebody said that to me. So... I say, hello, my name's Matt. But there you go. Uh, sometimes people ask, you, know, How, you have your hands full? You have your hands full? I say, yes, but they're full of goodness. Right? The other thing that these kids give to me is reflection, chances to reflect on God's relationship towards me and towards the world. How do I behave or want to behave towards my children? And I think about who God is as Father and how He wants to, or does, behave towards us as Father. So the uh, other night when I was preparing this presentation, my three-year-old, God love her, 
but she's got to scream. She was sleeping all, as all my kids were sleeping, right? And I was sitting down to do a little bit of work, thinking to get something done. But of course she wakes up, screaming. All my kids have different kinds of screams. This child has the scream of, if you watch Lord of the Rings, the ring wraith. You know, as the ring wraiths are going through, this kid has that kind of scream that just, oh, gets you. It's deep guttural, ugh, but then also this high pitch, ee, all at the same time. Amazing gift. So she woke up screaming. Of course, as a good parent, I, uh, a good father, I asked my wife to go and get her. No, <laughs> as a good father, I uh, went into the bedroom, grabbed my daughter, held her close, just this warm, warm ball of goodness, just started to crumple up and feel good, rested her head on my shoulder, and it felt good, and she quieted down and fell asleep. And I put her down in bed and went back to sleep. I go to do a little bit of work, cry again, repeat process, ask my wife to do it. She, you know, looks at me knowingly, of course not, dear. I go in, cuddle with the child, goes back to sleep, everything's good. I do it again because the child screams. Anyway, you get the idea. So now I was really up, not having done any work, thinking about suffering and thinking about God's relationship to suffering. I said, absence and presence can give us an insight into understanding God's compassion for us, right? Why was my daughter crying in agony when I was absent? Why was she calm and at peace when I was present? And what did I have to do to bring that kind of presence to her? So that's going to lead my discussion today as we think about God's suffering. So in this presentation, I would like us to step back from our reflecting on the meaning of human suffering and consider the what-if question about God's suffering. Now you see, across many religious traditions, we see similar views of the divine realm that is not touched by suffering, right? The divine realm is over and above everything and is not touched by suffering. Now Christianity has a unique view in world religions when it thinks about God's suffering. And that's because of our belief that God came in Christ to suffer with us on behalf of us, to save us. And the question then becomes, for Christianity, what do we make of this God who intervenes in our history and suffers with us on behalf of us? Now over 2,000 years we've had a delicate conversation, a lot of uh, answers have been given, but I'll just trace some of the general answers that Christians have given through the centuries. Now in the first centuries of Christianity, Christianity was heavily influenced by Hellenism, by Hellenistic ideas, by Greek ideas about the divine realm. And in Hellenism, for the most part, in its philosophical schools, God is impassable. God is impassable, does not change, does not suffer. It's impossible for God to suffer. And so these ideas have influenced so much of Christianity in its foundations. You can even find it uh, in Scripture. In Scripture, uh, in the later parts of the Old Testament, those parts that have been influenced by Hellenism, you find this strong idea of God not suffering. Uh, for example, you find in um, Malachi, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. This is a strong statement that could be said by uh, Greek philosophers, but also makes its way into the Old Testament as part of our faith. But there are other parts of the Old Testament before Second Temple Judaism or before the Hellenistic influence that complicate the picture of God. Genesis, for example, God repents. 
This seems to be a changing word. God repenting at having created humanity. This is a story of Noah. Story of Noah. Uh, in book of Exodus, God will relent. At times he'll full force pour forth his wrath upon the Egyptians, and then at different times he'll relent. Seems to be a change. Jeremiah also has sections where it seems that God is changing his views towards his people. But we also get, after uh, the Old Testament, the New Testament, a strong view of God not changing. You can see that in the letter of James. Uh, James 1.17, Every good endowment, every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no change, no variation, no shadow due to change. Right? So for James, God the Father is perfect, no change. And that usually implies, at least in James's language, no suffering. So we have this background in Christianity. But this gets complicated after uh, Christian experience, the world's experience of World War II. So in Christian theology, excuse me, in Christian theology, in the Christian tradition, uh, suffering was placed so exclusively on Jesus' assumed human nature, right? The divine nature of God can't suffer, but only the human nature of Jesus can suffer, right? Many theologians throughout the ages have used this as an answer to the Christian conundrum about their God who's come to suffer for us on behalf of us. Only the human nature of Jesus experienced that suffering, not the divine, perfect nature of the Trinity. Now, this view was so strong that you'd imagine it would have a backlash, and it comes out in World War II, right, with the gas chambers, the atomic bombs, the battleship artillery, the carpet bombing, the chemical warfare. From this experience of societal devastation, there was a new movement called the Death of God movement in Christian theology that thought Christians need to reevaluate their image of God. They need to do away with the belief of God being impassable, Right? incapable of change, incapable of suffering. They would argue that, uh, the Death of God movement did, that the Holocaust, which could kill 11, 17 million people, if the gulags could per kill perhaps 20 million or more, a God who's incapable of suffering could not be credible if they were to say this metaphysically perfect God would be removed for our suffering. And so this movement said, that God is dead. The new God is the God that suffers on the cross. And so from that standpoint of looking at the cross, that's where we construct our belief about who God is. Now the person who started this, or one of the many, but one who started this was um, a Japanese theologian, Kazu Katamori, uh, with his book, The Theology of the Pain of God. That was in 1965. And so he put this idea of the passable, the changing God, the suffering God into official circulation. And several people uh, took that up. In America, Process theology was this philosophical theological movement that was also questioning the ideas of the unchanging God. Process theology said we need to do with this essentialist idea of God. God doesn't change, but the world does, and reverse it. Well, if all of the world is changing, if it's continually in process and even evolution, then why can't we also say that's true of God? Is God in process? Process theology said yes. If God can be made perfect in suffering, then that gives us hope that we will be made perfect in suffering. So this philosophical school, this theological school took off. Some of the components of it um, that used it in their own theologies was a, 
uh, a fellow great theologian, Jürgen Moltmann, and another amazing theologian, Eberhard Jungel. So Moltmann and Jungel really put this theology in um, a lot of popular places, right? In the pews, but also in academic circles, right? So their theology of the cross argues that this Greek notion of an impassable God is foreign to Christianity and that it should be put to death. Uh, Moltmann, for example, thinks Christianity should not start with the axiom, God does not suffer, and then think about the cross. Right? He says, let's think about the cross first and then develop axioms or beliefs about who God is. Now, several Christian theologians have vigorously defended the traditional view against this. Um, there's a, a famous uh, Fran American Franciscan theologian, Thomas Wynandy, who's used Thomas uh, Aquinas a lot to argue against these views of the death of God movement. Right? So for Thomas, for Thomas Aquinas and then read through Thomas Wynandy, God is in perfect, pure act, always perfect, always in dynamic act. So there's no potency in him. There's no chance for improvement. There's no room for improvement in God. Right? So he does not change because he's in perfect, already always in perfect act, perfect, fulfilling, dynamic, loving act. No room for change, no room for suffering. And that then gives us hope. That's what uh, Thomas Wynandy, using Thomas Aquinas, would argue. Now, I think both of these views can be quite extreme, right? On the one hand, you could have what could be categorized as stoic vision of God, where God is continually changing and suffering, and suffering usually the undulations of human history. And then on the con uh, contrast to that is the Epicurean view of God, where God is so completely removed from the world that we can just do whatever we want, eat, drink, and be merry. God is so far above everything, and he doesn't care. He's made the clock of the world and then doesn't care how that clock operates. These views are extreme and not held by Christians today, but they, they are dangerous views. Right? The Christian God, the God that we believe in, complicates these extreme views and guides us to seek that kind of middle. And what I'm going to offer to you is a theologian, his name is Hans Urs von Balthasar. So Hans Urs von Balthasar is an important Catholic 20th century theologian. Uh, as far as theologians are concerned, he's kind of like the Haagen-Dazs of theologians. Right? You've had Haagen-Dazs before. It's very rich. You want a lot of it, but it's just too rich that you should, probably shouldn't. Right? It's a very rich theology, and there's a lot that you can do with it. So I'm going to offer to you in this talk Balthasar's way of thinking about God's suffering. All right, so before we do that, though, let's think about that word we've already been using quite a lot, the word suffering, and what we mean by that word suffering. So for me, at its center, real suffering is destitution of one's person. Destitution of one's person. For me, that's real suffering. Destitution of one's personhood. So suffering is not limited to physical, psychological, or social pain. These are effects of the experience of being robbed of one's dignity, of being a person. Right? A physical, a psychological, or social wound disrupts the integrity of one's body, thereby rendering an incompleteness to the bodily aspects of one person. A psychic wound could disrupt the labyrinth and integrity of your mind, thereby rendering an incompleteness to the mental aspects of one's person. A social wound 
disrupts the necessary human need for relationality, thereby rendering an incompleteness to the absolute necessity of the personhood. Now this last one, I think, is most important. We can endure a lot of physical pain and even psychic pain, but at heart what makes it worse, physical and psychic pain, what makes it worse is being alone, being alone. We are meant to, as human persons, we are meant to be perpetually in I-thou relationships with others, an I and a thou in relationship. This feels perfect when we're with another or with others. This feels right. The loneliness that we all have in our hearts is overcome by being in the presence or offering our presence to others. When we suffer alone, we are degenerating I with no thou. We are by ourselves with no thou to give us hope, to give us a presence, to give us peace, to give us relationship. The unbearableness of suffering alone is the destitution of one's person, of one's I, oneself, being in non-relationship with another person, a thou. I'm not sure if you've been at the deathbed of anybody. If you have, you know that your presence can give some alleviation to their suffering. It can't take them dying away, but it can help as you hold their hand as they slowly slip away. Because suffering alone is the most devastating aspect of suffering. Now in Christian theology, I'm using this word destitution, but there's a Greek word behind it, kenosis. I'm going to ask you to remember that word as we go through this talk. Right? Kenosis. Remember that word, I'm going to quiz you. I'm a professor, I get to do that. Right? Kenosis. It means emptying. It means destitution, it means emptying. Right? It's usually in contra uh, contradiction to the other Greek word, uh, pleuris, excuse me, pleurosis, fullness. Right? So perfection is fullness. Kenosis is emptiness. Imperfection. So remember that word, kenosis. That's important for Christians as they think about who God is, as they think about suffering. Suffering is kenosis, destitution of the personhood, destitution of the self. All right. You got that? Kenosis. Okay. Now, now I'd like to consider um, going into Hans Urs von Balthasar's theology. Okay. He's known for many things. One of the most important things that this uh, theologian is known for is developing a theology called uh, Theology of Holy Saturday. A Theology of Holy Saturday. All right, we're deep in the midst of Lent. Soon the alleviation of our fasting will come to us in the, the Easter Triduum, the three days. What are the three days? Usually you would answer Holy Thursday, uh, Good Friday, and then Easter Sunday. Uh, careful. The three days are Good Friday, and Holy Thursday is the prequel to Good Friday. It happens at night in Jewish reckonings of time. The new day begins at night, at sundown. So Holy Thursday, what we call Holy Thursday, is actually the beginning of Good Friday. So that counts as the day. Good Friday is the first day. The second day is Holy Saturday, the day you're usually doing shopping. That's the day Jesus is in, in hell. Right? We say that in the Creed, remember? The Creed? Jesus suffered, died, was buried, descended into hell, and on the third day he rose again from the dead. We usually skip that, that little phrase, descended into hell. That seems a little weird. That seems a little odd. 
Well, this theologian Balthasar says we shouldn't skip over that because that's part of our Christian faith. Right? The, the ancient Christians put that into the creed because it articulates something about who God is, the God we need to believe in. So I'm, I'm going to reflect upon that. What does it mean Christ descends into hell? And then, of course, the third day that makes the meaning of every day, Easter Sunday. Okay? So let's think about that descent of Christ into hell. That will give us an understanding of God's compassion for our suffering. Okay, the major work of Balthasar on this particular topic, it's called Mysterium Pascale. And so he's going to use the Christian concept of, remember the K word I gave to you? Kenosis, emptiness. So he uses that kenosis idea to interpret Holy Saturday. But he also applies that word, kenosis, emptying, to the incarnation. He also applies that word kenosis to understanding the Trinity, the relationship between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's an important word for him. Right? So let's think about how we can use that word emptiness, kenosis, and apply it to the Trinity. So Balthasar understands that God is Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, having within him already a kenosis, a self-destitution, a self-emptying. So good standard Christian Trinitarian theologian has the Father giving over his being divine, his possession of the divine nature, and through that surrendering of himself eternally comes the Son. The Son receives that divine nature and surrenders it himself back to the Father. And this exchange of Father and Son, surrendering of the divine nature, causes eternally a third, the Holy Spirit, who as that link between Father and Son is their exchange of love. That's a lot to take in. Right? We say, glory be to the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is our faith, that this Father is perpetually surrendering himself as being God, and this generates eternally the Son. And the Son takes his being divine and surrenders that back to the Father, eternally, ever, always perfect, surrendering their self to the other. And this overflowing kenosis, this overflowing self-emptiness is the origin of our faith, is the origin of creation, is the origin of redemption. So the unfolding of the Trinity is an eternal, Balthasar would say this, an eternal self-destitution of the persons toward each other. God is absolute love, contains all modalities of love, even the modality of suffering, separation, and self-destitution motivated and angered in the love exchange of the Trinitarian persons in the one God. You think that was good? You should see uh, our, our supper talk when my children ask me about who the Trinity is. Things get going. Usually my wife has to get us to stop and move on and eat our pizza, right? A lot going on. Hopefully you can follow along. I think you can. So for Balthasar, this concept of the Trinity is ever-flowing love toward the Son. The Father's ever-flowing love towards the Son, surrendering His divine being, His personhood, towards the Son. And the Son, overflowing that being divine towards the Father, results in this third, the Holy Spirit, gives us an understanding, not of a God changing, but a God loving, eternally loving. So this eternal love exchange contains within it all the modalities, all the possibilities of love. 
It doesn't mean that God changes. For Balthasar, no, God has no need to change when he makes a reality of the wonders of his charity. The making reality of his love within him is not change, but only revelation. We learn new aspects of the way he loves in his own being. All the contingent abasements of God, that God becoming incarnate, that God becoming dead on the cross, that God becoming uh, descent descending into hell, that God becoming, experiencing new life in the resurrection. All these abasements of God in the economy of salvation, in the world of salvation, are forever included and outstripped in the eternal event of love. So this theology of kenosis, of emptying, as revelatory of God's love, is applied then, or we can apply it, to this mystery of Holy Saturday. Now, throughout Christian history, the major view of the event of Holy Saturday, perhaps something that you may have received in catechism class, if at all, was that Jesus Christ descends to the dead in victory, harrowing the, the hallways of hell, restoring to heaven the Old Testament saints. Moses, Abraham, David, restored out of their temporary prison in hell through the victorious march of Christ now having accomplished that redemption. That's been the majority view throughout Christian history of what it means that Christ descends into hell. But there's also a minority view that has been taken up by different mystics throughout the Christian centuries. Uh, for example, one of them is um, Nicholas of Cusa, who talks about how this Jesus Christ descended into hell continues, continues the suffering pain, continues the deeper suffering pain of what was being revealed to us on the cross. He's redeemed not from the cross. Jesus Christ is redeemed from the dead. The day of Holy Saturday, the day Jesus' body is in the tomb, the day the, all the disciples have lost hope, that's still Christ sacrificing himself, the Son sacrificing himself. That's still suffering. You see, this minority view, like Nicholas of Cusa, and then Balthasar picks it up, is that what Christ is doing in the descent into hell is going to this place of the no, the infinite no to God, and saying there, yes. Right? Hell is that place that says no to God in a definitive way, and experiences the pains of that no, experiences the pains of that no. And Christ, the Son, goes to this depth and says yes to God. The Christian belief of the descent into hell is that God goes to the extreme to show his love for us. He doesn't just touch our suffering, experiences a little physical pain or mental pain, but an almost infinite pain that can only be experienced in a place of hell. Now, of course, objectively, the Son and the Father are always united with each other through the love of the Holy Spirit always, always objectively one and perfect, not capable of change. I'm not committing heresy here. No, no, no. Okay. Perfect. But can we understand that, by analogy, the son is allowing himself subjectively to experience loneliness from the Father? We have a word in the Gospels one of Jesus' last words, we, we, give, we experience some sense of this. 
Christ is on the cross. And one of his last words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you abandoned me? So Jesus Christ is experiencing a real death and that real why of humanity when we experience suffering. Why is this happening to me? Why does it seem that God has abandoned me, forsaken me? It's a real cry. Now, of course, that's the first verse of the quotation from Psalm 22. And if you read Psalm 22, you see that the whole of the psalm is a psalm of hope. It's a psalm where David is experiencing being forsaken because his kingdom and all that he's fought for is crumbling before him. And he cries out, why has God forsaken me? Why has God abandoned me? And the end of that psalm is this deep affirmation that he's been with me before. He has redeemed me before and he will redeem me again. And so I hope again that he will redeem me. Psalm 22. Read it sometime, okay? Psalm 22. And so Christ, incapable of repeating the whole of the psalm, it's a long one, gives us the first verse to give us insight into what he's experiencing on that cross. And it's not a temporary, I shouldn't say, it's not a false experience of forsakenness. It's a real experience of abandonment, forsakenness. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So Balthasar and and theologians that follow him say, this gives us an insight of the extent of Christ's suffering. He allows himself to experience the destitution of ourselves that we experience in true, real suffering. Remember, real suffering is being alone, not being in an I-thou relationship, experiencing non-relationality. So even the son experiences this. Notice he doesn't say, my father, my father, why have you forsaken me? No, now it's become this abstract principle, God. God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He had been referring to him as father. Now he seems even abandoned by God. Objectively always one, but somehow subjectively experiencing the suffering. Right, so for Christians, we believe that the redemption has been accomplished in Jesus Christ. And this redemption means that the God-man took on the whole experience of suffering, death, God-forsakenness, self-destitution. If for our sake God made Jesus to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, then this means that he takes on the whole experience of sin. Balthasar writes it in this way, Christ willed to deliver us by his solidarity with us, who are physically and spiritually dead. He would have to undergo the fullness of that solidarity. Death and Hades had engulfed us all. That is why Christ did not only come down to earth, but also under the earth. He found us all in the netherworld, the underworld, in pain and hell, and brought us out from there, not onto the earth, but into the kingdom of heaven. The Son takes into himself what in the realm of creation is imperfect, unformed, chaotic, so as to make it pass over into his own dominion as the Redeemer. The suffering of hell that Jesus experiences is not then something that just touches his humanity, but something more fundamentally touches his experience of being son in relationship to the Father. Although objectively he is always one with the Father, subjectively he experiences the God-forsaken self-destitution of suffering hell. So let me just summarize what we've accomplished so far, and then we'll get to that scripture passage we have right here as we try to apply this idea together. 
So to summarize, this theology is saying that when we suffer, right, we remain objectively always a person. Right? However subjectively or relationally we are depersonalized and made self-destitute. We're always, by our nature, a person in relationship with God, our Creator. Always a son, always a daughter. But sometimes subjectively you experience the destitution of that. In this way, God suffers. Objectively, he remains perfect in tri-personal union with himself, but in the death and descent, he suffers in the sense a distancing absence of subjectivity. Mouthful, right? From a Christian view, God does not suffer, if by suffering we mean physical pain, right? God is immaterial. God does not feel mental pain. God is perfect mind, perfect intellect. But God does, does experience subjective, relational pain, in the suffering death on the cross and the going down to the dead, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit experienced the relational distance of the Son during the passion and descent of the dead as, a, as an event from within, as a suffering happening because of their love for humanity. Now, re, let's return to that story of my daughter crying, wailing. She's feeling completely abandoned in that bed all cuddled up, but she's experiencing some abandonment, feeling alone. And so she's crying out, rescue me, rescue me. And so I, as her father, go and experience her suffering with her, curling her up, comforting her. I'm now getting up out of bed. I'm now giving up what I had planned before so that I can go compassionately suffer with my child. That's the suffering that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit undergo. Perfect love, being compassionate, suffering with humanity that's crying out like that little baby. My little baby was crying out. Help us, help us. So then the Son goes on mission given to him by the Father, revealing and giving that love of the Holy Spirit. So what I'd like to give to you as a last reflection is what you have here, a scripture passage, as we think about God's compassion. Now tomorrow, Sunday, this is going to be the gospel reading. I don't know about you, but I like to read the gospel reading before Mass goes because I have four kids and they don't usually let me listen to the scripture passage. Because they're saying, pick me up, pick me up, pick me up. No, I'm trying to listen to the gospel. Right? No, pick me up, pick me up. So I try to read it beforehand so I'm in a better state of mind. I react properly. This is a beautiful parable, one of the best parables. We'll just take five, ten minutes to reflect on it, and then I'll answer some of your questions if you have some, and I will continue to eat some of this good food, too, and have another talk. It'll be wonderful. All right, so this parable of parables has many things going on. You probably know it. Uh, It's usually introduced as the uh, prodigal son parable. But in reality, there's more going on in this passage than just the prodigal son. It's really the parable of the father and the two sons. Each of them, each of these figures is teaching something about what it means to be human in relationship to God. Now, one of the standard, I think, important translations and meanings of this passage is that the young son who squanders his heritage represents the Gentiles. The older son represents the Jews who obediently, servilely follow the law. And then, through the Christian message of compassion of the Father, the Gentile is allowed back into right relationship with the Father, and a big party is thrown. The Christian message is the Gentiles and the Jews, both sons, belong into this church. So that's an important meaning that's going on in this passage that you have here. Uh, But I want to focus on 
the father figure and what the father figure does towards each of the sons. Okay, shall we? Now notice the younger son. What a deep insult he gives to his father. What a deep insult he gives to his father. Father, this is verse 12, give me the share of the property that will belong to me. He's going to receive his inheritance when his father dies. Basically, he wants his father to die. What an insult. Well, I can't wait around for you to die, so just give it to me now. What an insult. And notice how many times he refers to himself in that passage. Father, give me the share of the property that will belong to me. Me, me, me. So the younger son is motivated out of self, uh, selfishness. Now notice what the younger son does with this. Now I like it, first of all, the father gives the son his inheritance. Right? There's two meanings to forgiveness, and that's a, me a message of this passage. Forgiveness, like before there's a gift. Forgiveness, giving before. So the father gives his inheritance before, and then at the end of the passage, he's going to give him more of that inheritance through this big party. So forgiveness also means re-acceptance. Giving of mercy. So before and then also after. All that this father is is mercy. So this younger son takes his inheritance, and you have it here in verse 13. He goes to a distant country. He goes to a far country. The Greek word there is kora makra. It means a big empty space. So the younger son takes his inheritance and goes to the big empty space. And there squanders it. And he'll realize how terrible that is. And he'll start to have nostalgia for even what the servants in his father's house experienced. Right? He makes some kind of insight that even though the devil, this empty space, is offering me the highest position, it's better to be the guy who cleans the latrines in God's army, where there's fullness and grace and more than enough than it is to be some kind of commander in the devil's army. I'd rather be one small, insignificant slave in God's house than to be the highest position in the devil's army. He realizes that. And so that motivates him to come back. He composes a speech. I love that. He composes. So this is what I'm saying. I'm going to say this, I'm going to say this, and I'm going to say this, and that's going to win my father back. I love it uh, in the verse where he goes to his father. So skip down to verse 20. So he, the son, went off and went to his father, but while he was still far off, important line in this passage, while he was still far off, his father saw him and was filled with mm, compassion. He ran, put his arms around him, and kissed him. That's an important part of this passage. Now, at the time of Jesus, there was a, an ancient proverb. An old man's cloak does not move. An old man's cloak does not move. The meaning is that the old man, the patriarch of the family, sat there with his cloaks and did not move, and everybody would come to him, giving obeyance, giving honor. The old man's not supposed to move. You're supposed to move to give your honor to him. Look what this father does. This father humiliates himself. Right? This father was waiting. So just as the sun comes over the horizon, the father is ready for him. And then humiliates himself, his position as father, who should have his son groveling to come back. No, this father humiliates himself in order to go out and reach his younger son. Now what he gives to him 
is this great feast and also rings. Right? We should see in this some kind of allusion to a wedding ring. Right? The whole story of the Old Testament and New Testament is God marrying Israel, marrying the people of God. The people of God squandering that marriage, divorcing God, but God always remaining faithful. But then the story of Christianity is a belief that that people of God that squandered that marriage can come back. And so this father representing the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit gives again the wedding ring. I gave you this in the beginning of our relationship. I'm giving it back to you again to celebrate, to feast, to be in right relationship with each other. To restore this son to his dignity. A robe is given to him. Sit at the best place in this house. His dignity, his personhood is restored. But notice it had to come through the father surrendering, humiliating himself to give compassion towards the son. Now we only have a little bit of time, but think about that eldest son who is resentful of his younger son. You see, the older son has already been experiencing this life, divine life of grace. But he looks at it as a servant relationship. Uh, 25. Now his elder son was in the field when he came and approached the house. He heard music, dancing. He called one of the slaves, asked what was going on, and then the servant explains, verse 28. He became angry, refused to go in. His father came out. Again, what does the father do to get this eldest son to come to the party? old man's cloak does not move. But this old man is a father of compassion and love, and so he humiliates himself to go get the eldest son to come back. His father came out and began to plead with him, but he answered his father, listen, for all these years I've been working like a slave for you. And he's indignant. You see, what's going on in this passage is a misunderstanding of the gifts of the father towards his son. It's a principle of self-kenosis, of super-kenosis, of gift. You see, God's life is, the Trinity's life is always gift. Father giving himself to the Son, the Son giving himself to the Father, and the Holy Spirit is their love in this eternal exchange of love. That exchange of love is given to humanity, and it fails when humanity takes it as its own possession. You see, the gift of that divine life flowers 30-fold, 50-fold, 100-fold, when that divine life given to humanity is given back. When the younger son gives back what he's been given. When the eldest son treats as a gift what he's been given by remaining in that father's house. Then the divine cycle of life is continuing. Of superkinosis, of super self-gift. Of holy love. Of holy love. And that's what this passage has as a message. The Father reaching out in compassion, desiring us to receive that compassion to give back to the others. So I'm at time for my talk, and we can have some questions and answers, but I don't want you to miss the next talk. It'll, it's going to be good. It's going to be good. But so thank you very much. God bless you. Maybe we could take five minutes for questions and answers. Go ahead. No, you've got, you've got the mic. Questions? Comments? Can I tell you a story then? Five minutes? Easy. Maculae Ilabagiza uh, is a wonderful, wonderful woman. 
Immaculate Ilebegiza experienced uh, the Holocaust in Rwanda. She sometimes comes to St. John's and gives speeches. Her beautiful book, uh, Left to Tell. Her beautiful book, Left to Tell. Please read it, okay? Please read it. Left to Tell, Immaculate Ilebegiza. So Immaculate Ilebegiza experiences the Rwandan genocide. You may know something of that genocide. I'm not going to explain all of it here. But in the midst of that genocide, Immaculate's brother is slaughtered. And Immaculate is hiding out in a um, small compartment in a bathroom that um, those who are committing the genocide don't know about. And her brother is being slaughtered just outside that room. So Immaculate heard her brother being slashed up by a machete and those that were committing that genocide reveling in it. Now, somehow, amazingly, Maculay grows in her faith in that experience and is rescued, leaves Rwanda, and eventually when peace starts to take hold in Rwanda, goes back to Rwanda, and she goes back to her village. She goes then to the prison where the killer of her brother is. And this is Christian. This is what it means to be a Christian. She goes to the prison cell where she meets the person who killed her brother that she heard so gruesomely dissect her brother with a machete. And the um, jailer opens the door to um, this prisoner, this murderer. And Immaculate looks him in the eyes. He can't look her in the eyes. The jailer turns his back. Right, the jailer wants Immaculate to go at it. There's a chair over there, at least spit on him, whatever it might be. And Immaculate looks in his eyes and says, I forgive you. I forgive you. The jailer starts to ream Immaculate out. How can you do that? Do you know what he did to your brother? Do you know what he did to your family? Do you know, do you know what he did to all these other families? How could you do that? No, I've come here to give forgiveness to this man so that he can know peace, so he can know compassion. You see, my friends, that's the Father's relationship towards us. We've offended in so many ways. I have so many sins that I've offended the Father. But our Father is not some fussy old policeman who's looking at you like, no, our Father is a compassionate Father who goes to us and says, I love you, I forgive you. There's one comment. Go for it. I was always wondering, how do you reconcile God's justice? Yes. Sure, yeah, so the question is, um, the question of justice, right? So it seems that in our human understanding of justice, the son, the younger son, should have some kind of punishment for his disobedience towards, the, towards his father, for his insults towards the father. Uh, and it does seem that the eldest son is right in saying, how could you give all of these good gifts to this uh, younger son who squandered uh, your name, your inheritance? Right? That's our human reading of justice. Everyone gets what they deserve. Right? The, the Gospels give us, we can talk more about this later, back and forth, because we are at time. But the vision at, in this parable and other parables is that God's justice is different. God's justice looks at us and knows that we all are this younger son. 
we are all this eldest son who don't accept this life of grace that he's given to us and squander it. We don't deserve to be in the Father's house. But God's vision of justice and compassion aren't opposed to each other. God's vision of justice are the same instance of love, where he reaches out of himself to draw people in. We don't deserve it, but out of his love and his compassion, out of his love and compassion, that's what he decides to do. That's a different form of justice than we usually think of it. It's a justice fused with compassion, coming out of love. We can talk more about it um, just after the, the break, okay? That'd be wonderful. I'd like that. Okay, thank you very much for this time. We're out of time, so thank you. To me, Dr. Matthew Sutton. Please subscribe and rate on iTunes. Follow me on Twitter. I'm at Dr. Sutton. And also on Instagram at Samurai Moses. My website is drsutton.net. So much good is there. Cheers and make something beautiful for God.